good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to tonight's edition of Live from Roswell. This is your guest host, Tom Horn, filling in once again for the one and only Guy Malone. Uh, Guy is going to be back this next Sunday to continue his weekly trek into the mysterious and unknown. But until then, I apologize that you have to put up with me again. However, to make up for it, uh, we've got a couple of fascinating guests for tonight's two-hour program. And you'll be excited to know that up with us first tonight is a man who has been interviewed on matters of ufology, history, prophetic world events, and so on by every major news outlet in America and Europe, including ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox News, Time, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, the Miami Herald, the BBC, Channel 4 of the UK, uh, the list goes on and on. I'm talking, of course, about uh, Terry James, my dear friend, whose books have sold around the world in the hundreds of thousands. His website, RaptureReady.com, is the number one prophecy news site of its kind in the world with millions of visitors per month and whose new book, Nephilim Imperatives, is certain to become his next bestseller, we hope. Right, Terry? We certainly hope so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Terry, it's sure good to have you on with us tonight. Well, thank you, Tom, for inviting me. I'm just glad to be here. Well, we're going to have a good time. We're going to talk about your new book tonight, and I'm certain that uh, Live from Roswell listeners are going to be intrigued, and they're going to want to buy and read this book because, well, frankly this together with so much more of your other research in so many ways actually just reads like today's headline. Um, but before we get to the book, let's mention some of the past week's headlines that reflect some of the information in your book. For instance, and probably most importantly, this number of former pilots and ex-government officials this past Monday, November 12th, I'm sure you're completely aware of that. Yeah calling for the United States government to initiate new probes into reports of UFOs uh, and the like. Uh, Terry, what do you make of the interest of some of these? I mean, these are very highly credible people, and some of them claim that they've had experiences seeing UFOs or, or somehow interacted with them. What do you think about these new investigations that are being called for? Well, I think obviously these people have a, have very pent up uh, uh, memories of these things, and they want to uh, they want to uh, at least uh, uh, be be upfront and honest with uh, the people and, and see to it that the government is. I I'm really uh, I'm really uh, in sync with uh, the government of France over the past uh, decade or so, but I really admire them for having released uh, I think some 1,600 files. I wish our government would be forthcoming, and I. I admire these, uh, what, I think around 15, led by uh, former governor of um, Arizona, I think it's Bob Symington, in releasing these things. I'm, I'm very uh, uh, grateful for them to, to at least put the effort forth. I, don't, I haven't seen a follow-up on any of you. Well, th there was another news story that just came out today, and I haven't had a, a chance to read it. I saw it in um, Donna's list of news stories to run tomorrow. Um, another one of the people who were actually ground participants in the uh, Roswell incident in which he is allegedly, he's, you know, obviously he's probably in his 70s or 80s now, and he's allegedly saying that that the event was really what the mythology about ufology says about it, that they really did recover a craft. He was one of the guys on the ground that helped recover the material. 
and he for a long time evidently wasn't willing to talk about it because you know these veterans have their pensions and things like that to concern themselves with but he's evidently old enough now and maybe has enough money in the bank or whatever that he's not as concerned about it as he was when he was younger and he's saying that you know not only was something actually recovered from Roswell but that these stories about even bodies that were recovered uh, they were actually true that the military was aware of it at the time that it was going on and you know the th- thing that I always think about I mean, talking about the uh, France being uh, forthcoming uh, the United Kingdom has been more th- more forthcoming a bit lately we also see where Clinton UFO files. Some of those are being forced out into the light, if you will, because of, uh, you know, uh, petitions in court to, to try to get those documents revealed. I'm not sure that it'll, that it'll tell us much of anything, because they come out so highly censored anyway. Right. Um, but it, it's a strange time we're living in. I mean, it's... What is your gut feeling, Terry? What, what do you feel right now in terms of uh, official disclosure? Do you believe... Do you think that the governments of the world, including maybe even the United States, are poised to take us to an event horizon with regard to official disclosure in the near future? I don't know about uh, what you how you term the near future, but I think uh, I think definitely it's trending that way. But I sense that it's not quite yet the time that they will uh, they will release a significant information, Tom. Uh, of course, what do I know? I don't know anything about the inner workings of government so far as um, you know, what their plans are or anything else. But if the pressure builds to the point that I would hope that it would uh, from these gentlemen who uh, last, I think it was uh, Monday uh, before last, uh, came forward with these things, uh, the pressure builds, I would hope that this would lead government to want to be forth- more forthcoming. And uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Of course, the U.S. Air Force has already posted on their website. There's nothing new in the way of evidence to warrant mm-hmm. any kind of a new Project Blue Book or something like that. Um, but um, where, where do you think all this is going? And then we'll move on. As far as UFO matters are concerned. Well, of course, you know, uh, Tom, that I, I come from everything, uh, at everything from a biblical viewpoint. I think these things have significant uh, overtones, and, and that's uh, uh, the angle I come from. I think that uh, that uh, these things are something that are scheduled prophetically to become more and more um, ubiquitous, uh, you know, more and more known throughout the world, and, and there'll be more and more sightings and so forth. I think we can, if, if we believe in a biblical worldview, and uh, I do, and uh, believe in Bible prophecy, that it's literal, not figurative. Uh, I think we can look forward to seeing uh, a greatly accelerated um, uh, increase in these things as as time progresses. And of course, you're a highly respected prophecy scholar. Even though a moment ago you said, "What do I know?" <laughs> but you're a, you're a humble man. But of course, you are recognized as as being more than just a student of of prophecy and end time events. And do you find that much of what's happening? with regard to ufology, and we're going to talk about more than that in just a moment, but with regard to these kind of phenomenology that are in the news right now, that is it is it uh, coincidental that there's also so many other things around the world? And I mean, you could talk about earthquakes, strange weather patterns. We could talk about what's happening in the Middle East, the rise of 
Gog and Magog, the strengthening of the, uh, the Red Dragon. You, you can talk about all these events that are happening around the world. And, of course, you know, I was, I was uh, in Bible college years ago, too. And I'm back in those days, you know, we, we would strain to try to find just one thing that we could point to that would signal for us that the return of Christ was at hand. Um, but, man, now, I mean, even the secular press, 2020, different news stations, they're, you know, they're talking about the apocalypse. The President of the United States has talked about this stuff. What's going on? Well, I know these, these same press you're talking about have come to... Uh to me and the website and, and everything and wanting to know uh, uh, some answers. A lot of it's tongue-in-cheek, some especially UK and some other places about Bible prophecy, but there seems to be a visceral feeling there, uh, especially just beneath the surface, that there is something up and uh, they, they want to know what it is, despite the fact they have to entertain their, their readers or their viewers or whatever. But you're right about the prophetic things that are happening. You, know, you mentioned you were in school, in seminary probably, and, uh, and at that time, well, people were actually looking for these things, looking for anything that showed us where we might be on God's prophetic timeline. But today, and these things are just absolutely prolific. Uh, and, and it seems to me the seminaries have turned off uh, all interest. This really, uh, and, this and really it, fascinates and, me. And, Terry, isn't that astonishing that, that as the secular press is actually picking up on the language of eschatology, it, the, you know, so many of our churches and whatever, they're, they're not even talking about that's it. That's right. It's they're very busy building their, their, their mega churches and Well, so and forth. of course, that's prophetic, too, isn't it? I think so, Jesus. All right. You know, Jesus himself said that when I return, will I find any faith on the earth? Now, there, he, he now, now there's, much. there's an awful lot of people that listen to this radio program. Tens of thousands of people listen to this radio program. Many of them don't believe in Bible prophecy or anything like that. And yet... Uh, what did you tell me the other day in terms of the number of unique hits on your website, Rapture Ready? You know, you'd have to ask Todd to get specific. I know there's over 9 million hits a month now. Now, I don't know the terms unique versus, uh, I, know, I know what that means, but I, I don't know the numbers in, right. in that area. But it's a million. It's, it's in the millions, and, yeah. And, I don't and, know it's quite and, and of course. But, well, I would suggest to anyone who, who uh, does not believe in a Bible prophecy. I understand that, and that's their, of course they're right. I don't, I don't uh, throw mud at them, mud, mud balls at them if they don't, and I, and I ask that they, re, you know, to return the favor and not throw mud balls at me, because I do. We're, we're free in Americans, and I would hope that, that they would uh, be, um, be uh, honest enough, intellectually honest enough, to go to our website and, and check these things out. We have literally, we have over 16,000 articles, absolutely free, no charge at all. And that's what has made our website, RaptureReady.com, probably the, you know, the most visited uh, Bible prophecy website. So I would invite them to do that. Well, and my point is that with, with millions per month, that means hundreds of millions per year. Uh, it just indicates that right now there is, um, whether people are, you know, of one particular faith or not, it indicates that right now there is a sense among the general population, uh, among the world's population, that something is unfolding, that prophetic events are unfolding right before our, our eyes. And there are also, you know, books outside of the Bible that support those prophecies in the Bible. Uh, and, and so you, have, you just have people, you know, from everything from the New Age to, to atheists or whatever, but 
Palazam on 2020, people talking about, you know, is this the apocalypse? Is this the end of time? And they're doing that because there's something in the air right now, and nobody can deny that these astonishing ancient sages who wrote down these events that would be occurring in what they call the end of time or the last days, that, that right now uh, even mathematicians would have to scratch their head at the complexity of how these events are seem to be unfolding, and there's a harmony of them. It's not just one event, it's everything. It seems to be a, a geometrical progression, and, uh, and absolutely, and, and I think that, uh, that one of the things that uh, shows us uh, that it is Bible prophecy, in my view anyway, is the fact that Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man, meaning the time when he returned. And uh, at that time, one of the chief uh, signals was, was, of course, that, that the sons of God, the benign Elohim, saw the daughters of men that they were fair and came down and took the wife to them, everyone they chose. And from those unions, of course, was produced the Nephilim, the, uh, the giants of old. Uh, and, uh, and so I think that, uh, I think that we are uh, getting in that general time frame and very close to the end, as a matter of fact, uh, just before Christ uh, returns. And, uh, so now I want to ask you about these Nephilim, and before uh, the Nephilim, and, uh, but before we leave this, this first question here about all these people that are asking the U.S. government and other, other governments to come clean about ufology, because this actually ties into this question of the Nephilim. I, I personally have interviewed uh, most of the experts from the different uh, newscasts from this last week, Nick Pope, Stanton Friedman, uh, Dr. Bruce Maccabee, Dr. Tom Van Flandern, and so on. And what I've found with most of those people is that while they might not necessarily agree with my particular Christian worldview at all, um, the way that I would interpret this phenomenon, these people struck me, though, as being genuine. Jesse Marceau Jr., all of them, they struck me as being genuine people. And in terms of science, these are scholars in their field. And, and they believe, uh, they believe deeply that there is something to these UFOs. And some of them believe that there's something to the UFO entities, the ETIs, the extraterrestrial intelligences. Now, in the past, uh, what was it, Terry? I mean, was it a government effort to make people believe that only the lunatic fringe would <laughs> believe in, the, in UFOs? Well, for so long, you know, I mean, yeah, since the, I guess the first sighting when, when Colonel, I can't remember his name now, saw the things looking, going across the mountains and, and as he was flying, and, and he said they looked like flying saucers. But of course, the, the media picked up on that and sensationalized it, but at the same time, it was tongue-in-cheek with them. And uh, from that spawned, was spawned many of the old black-and-white uh, UFO-type movies uh, that we remember probably in my, my age, remembers anyway. Oh yeah, and uh, and uh, so uh, from that has come a skepticism, but I think that skepticism is now uh, in the general population turning to a big question mark. Well, is it true or not? So I think a little bit of the uh, the tongue in cheek and the the chuckle when when these things are mentioned uh, are now turning into more serious uh, expressions on people's faces. Well, certainly, I mean these. These people that stood up this week, these are PhDs. These are scientists, former pilots. And these are the people that are now calling for uh, official disclosure. All right. Um, let, let's talk about how this news that's out this week might relate to 
your new book. You've written a new book. It's called The Nephilim Imperative, Dark Sentences. Mm -hmm. And what I find intriguing about this book is how you've, and people need to know it doesn't even come out until December 12th, but I've had the privilege of being able to see the PDF file. It, it ties modern-day news uh, and even his, history, uh, real history and news, into this subject of UFOs. But you go further than that in that you hint that there could be um, the unfolding of hidden prophecy, as you alluded to uh, a little while ago. Now, tell me why you did that, and, and, and tell us, what, tell me, what do UFOs have to do with the subject of Bible prophecy? Well, again, uh, I'll get to that in just a moment, but what I believe that UFOs have to do with Bible prophecy, and again, getting back to Luke 17. But um, something very dramatic happened mid-century, mid-20th century. <clears throat> the explosion of the first atomic uh, uh, weapon, bomb. Following that quickly were, were some really dramatic events. Uh, you had the conclusion of World War II instantly upon the explosion of those two bombs that Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then um, shortly after that, things really started ginning uh, up about the influx of, of the Jewish people from around the world into uh, the Middle East, into back toward their homeland, and uh, things started really picking up in that regard. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found at Qumran, and uh, uh, from that time, it seems to me at least, that uh, things really uh, got on a uh, real escalator so far as uh, uh, speeding up things and uh, things really ratcheting up for bringing in some kind of a new paradigm. Um, and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, proved much of the Old Testament and some of the New Testament, some of the, the vast body of New Testament, I mean, of scrolls that were found in Qumran and uh, then shortly after that, in 1948, uh, of course, May 14th, uh, midnight, May 14th, uh, May 15th, the Ben-Gurion declared the independence of Israel. America was there to midwife the birth, uh, the modern birth of Israel. And uh, we have acted as midwife, of course, uh, uh, to Israel, and then as a protector in the human sense. I think God is its ultimate protector. But uh, then <coughs> things kept... Uh, uh, moving along, you had the 1967 war that portended, and 56, first of all, the 56 war where the Egyptians uh, under Nasser uh, mounted a massive attack on Israel. Israel's whole history has been one uh, under under the gun. So Israel is at the center of all of this, uh, all of prophecy, and I believe of all a lot of this uh, UFO activity. During those battles, there have been many reports of um, of seeing sightings, of seeing the uh, lights that do strange things in the air, and even there have been some strange reports and from credi fairly credible sources about um, about planes flying with a dead pilot and still fighting, and uh, of course routing the, uh, the enemy. 1967 is another, 1973 is another. So this, this mid-century seems to have opened something, and, and I, uh, very dramatic. And so I start my first novel there, and uh, the second one, The, the Nephilim Imperative, now, what's uh, the title of the first novel? Well, the first novel was uh, The Rapture Dialogues. I start there with Run with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, I try to build on that as, in a historical sense as well as a fictional sense. 
I've taken a lot of literary license, as they say, but at the same time I've tried to uh, work it in so that you will hold the reader's interest and give them some sense of perspective. Uh, many people uh, have been alive since, uh, uh, since the time uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were found, but many more, of course, as you come up through uh, uh, history, uh, history of America, history of the world. So I tried to make this all some kind of somehow cogent and uh, and uh, interesting and fascinating as you come into the as you end the first novel, the Rapture Dialogues, uh, basically uh, in the, in the year 2001, and and that's where I take up in the second novel, basically 2000 uh, 2001, and uh, from that uh, I continue with the historical um, uh, fictional uh, mix. And uh, what I try to do is to show how it is, uh, it is not altogether simply fantasy to think that uh, the, the UFOs, the things that so many people have seen reported, including the credible sources we've been talking about, how it's not so far-fetched to think that uh, uh, through reverse engineering and other things, these things are, are working together in some uh, covert ways and maybe some not so covert ways, to produce, um, produ to produce once again, um, a being much like Jesus uh, uh, talked about in, in, obliquely when he mentioned that, I'll get into the prophecy part, in, in Luke 17, verse 17, uh, I mean chapter 17, verses 26 to 30, basically he starts out by saying that, um, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day of the Son of Man. I mean, the day when he returns uh, in the second advent, returns to earth. And, uh, of course, we go back to Genesis. What was going on in, in uh, the days of Noah? Right. Well, talking about the antediluvian times, the times before the flood. And, and what, you know, what was, the, what was the very thing that would have marked that day so that of all of the things that Christ could have said, he would have chosen say as it was in the days of Noah? I think two things. I think, I think uh, first of all, in, in uh, chapter 6, verses, I believe it's verse 11, and I think it's 15, or I think it is 15, or 13 maybe, they said that violence filled the whole earth. Well, of course, I think uh, with um, now, uh, with the, with the uh, terror, uh, terrorism that we are all so uh, worried about, the war on terror and all this stuff, I think we can pretty much say that at least the earth, the world's mind is on violence, and uh, and it's uh, we have we know we have an entire, I believe, religion that is devoted to uh, at least the fanatic portions are devoted to to violence. So Jesus, number one is violence, or, or that filled the whole earth at that time. Well, we have that now. But Jesus said also that again, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be. And and we have the uh, you know the, the thing we talked about a while ago the 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 fallen angels, the one-third of the angelic uh, hosts that rebelled with Lucifer against God were cast out of heaven. And uh, they came, they saw, they looked down to the earth that God had created and, and placed mankind and saw that uh, saw the daughters of men, human, human women, that they were fair. They came to earth and, and of course, cohabitated. They... they um, had sexual relations with them, and from those unions were produced the Nephilim, the, the, uh, the giants. Now, you mentioned a moment ago in your first book, uh, Rapture Dialogues, um, how you start out talking about real historic events, the Qumran, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and 
some people may not know that in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, among those books was also the Genesis Apocryphon, which actually supports the book of Enoch, a story in the book of Enoch and also in the book of Genesis, this story about these watchers who right. came down, these powerful angels. And, and that what you're talking about right now, correct? They involved themselves with women, and out of right. that were born these Nephilim. Exactly. And of course, uh, the Bible that is accepted as the canon of Scripture, uh, the Book of Enoch, of course, was not accepted as part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, I believe God, of course, was, he is God, and I believe he directed that it not be. But still, it is a very valid book, and uh, it's, just, it's just the other side of being... Uh, uh, acceptable for the canon of Scripture, I can assure you, at least from what I, I know about it, and it's validated in, in again in Jude, the book right. of Jude. So, um, so at least they accepted it as history, whether or not it was inspired text or canonized. Absolutely, and I don't see anything where they even, for one second, uh, indicated otherwise that it was not a valid part of of the, of the facts. Now, so, so, so let's get back to these Nephilim, though. Just so that most people out there can get what we're talking about, what, what, is, what would you say is the definition of a Nephilim? What is, what was a Nephilim? Well, some people think um, that, and I think our, our wonderful friend, uh, Patrick uh, Heron, Patty Heron, he, he believes that they were actually the, those who came down to Earth. I, I believe that it's a, a, a human angelic mixture uh, and uh, they, their offspring. I honestly, I believe that these creatures had no souls. God, uh, the things got so bad, they, the genetics became so contaminated and, be, contaminated and became so uh, widespread throughout the world that God said he had to destroy the earth. I believe a big part of that was genetic contamination. And I believe these things had no souls, these ones, these offspring. And uh, I think those were the Nephilim, the giants. They were huge. Uh, I think they were huge beasts. I think they're probably different, different sizes, different, different sorts. Uh, but I believe that uh, they are not, not demons. But I believe they are the demon offspring. Uh, I could be wrong there, but I mean this is just my opinion. And uh, the, the well, Nephilim. Course, um, but now, in your book, though, this the the new book, the Nephilim Imperatives, mm -hmm. Dark Senses, um, and. This might be the big question. I mean, we're we're talking now, uh, not just reverse engineering of craft, but the possibility. Uh, and this is a fictional setting, but I want to ask you how close you think all of this might be to a to a dark, a real world scenario where you where you've got these same kind of beings that are now being generated again. In other words, with your book, how close to reality? Are, are the things in your novel? I, th I think they're very close, and, and I think that we see that in the cloning. Uh, I think Satan, uh, Satan and his minions have their hands all over the cloning uh, thing. Uh, again, attempt to uh, contaminate the genetics of mankind in some way. Start out with scientific investigation and scientific experimentation, and so forth, and, and the, with the animals and and uh, the, you know the things like that. But I think. <laughs> I think in some of there may be a doctor, Doctor Moreau's Island somewhere. I don't know, but but at least in my fictional account, I um, I, I have the, the story gravitate toward that and the, with the characters and so forth. 
And uh, I just think that uh, we could be very close to a time when uh, there is produced uh, some sort of a hybrid. Uh, and and uh, I'll let the people get the book to see the way well, I... Well, and, and, as, and as far as, I mean, and I've said this for some time now, that what's happening with modern biotechnology appears to be, at least, on the surface, uh, you know, a mirror of what the watchers were doing because when you look exactly, at the, yes. <laughs> when you look at that record they were they were blending humans and animals and creating some kind of a a, a muta- mutation into which they were downloading themselves and when when you look at what's happening now there was a news story out uh, today headlines over at Raiders News Network and probably at, at uh, I, I don't know if it was but it might have been over at raptureready.com about uh, you know in the United Kingdom they're 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 moving forward with full speed ahead, but not just the creation of human animal chimeras, but babies that have three parents. I mean, just all kinds of craziness. But this stuff's happening right now. We're not talking about fiction. This is actually happening. No, but I think it's from the mind of Lucifer. I think uh, the mind of uh, Satan is... Um... Well, and, and Terry, if this is happening, because we, the history of the world tells us that what, what we see happening in terms of scientific development that's visible, that's just out there for public consumption, that, 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 that governments of the world and, and military budgets are at least probably 20 years ahead of those technologies and dark budgets. Well, I think, so, yeah, I, I think, I think they will admit to uh, seven years at least. And, yeah, well, I so agree. do you think there's a conspiracy? In other words, is the government of the United States and other, other governments, are they aware or are they covering up the truth about things like UFOs and Nephilim and so on, or uh, are you think things like that are actually happening? Well, this, this is going, this is going to uh, to probably brand me as a kook of some kind, a conspiratorial kook. But I have to think that yes, at some level there is there is a cabal that that uh, are in, as we say in the old in the old days, cahoots with uh, with uh, spirits. I think uh, as much as with. Um, humans in their experimentation. What do you think? Well, I agree with you. And as far as kooks, I mean, you know, every 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 prophet in their own generation was considered a kook until the next generation came along. That's right. And the things that you and I have been talking about now for more than a decade, a decade ago sounded kooky, but today it's today's headline. So, um, uh, and I think that as time goes on, and this probably is part of our mission as well, to communicate truth so that we can reach as many people as possible so that they understand what's unfolding within our world so that they're not lost or overtaken by fear or anything else when some of this stuff comes upon us. I mean, like I say, you know, I've, I've interviewed some of the top people. When I, I remember interviewing Dr. Thomas Flander, and he, is, he has an enormous amount of research on artificiality on Mars. And when you, when you, when you look at guys that have credentials like that, Maccabee and other guys, I mean, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself, what what would happen if all of a sudden the the governments of the world walk out into the well of the United Nations and suddenly announce that we are in contact with extraterrestrial intelligence and start displaying all these ancient artifacts on some other planet? I'm just saying, if something like that happened, it could, my, that might not ever happen. But if something like that happened, there'd be a huge number of people who may, you know, just be frozen in their tracks. Mm-hmm. And so, but then all of a sudden, guys like you and me, uh, who are kooks today, will be prophets tomorrow. 
Now, <laughs> or we may just be kooks forever, but I'm fairly convinced that we're on the right track here. I think we are, too. I think the evidence is there, and, and I think it's incumbent upon us to, uh, to uh, as you say, uh, get the message out. I, I think it is absolutely incumbent on us, and I congratulate you, uh, Tom, on, on what you do on, on uh, the Raiders and so forth to, to do just that. Well, Terry, let me, so do you think that, like UFO sightings, and, and especially as this might involve extraterrestrial intelligence, um, what, what, so what are these things in your mind? An, an ET might be something entirely different than a Nephilim. What, what are these yeah, things? Some well, people I think, say, you know, you, you have, I think you have the spirit world versus the, um, versus the, the geophysical world, even if it's a geophysical other world. Uh, you have the extraterrestrials, which is what uh, most of the films were made about and most of the scientists want to talk about, uh, looking into the to, uh, SETI and so forth, and then to, uh, into the, uh, into the space for these extraterrestrials. I believe that they're not extraterrestrial. I believe they've been here all along since uh, Lucifer first entered the Garden of Eden, and I believe these are interdimensionals, not extraterrestrials. Now, do you spirits. believe these things? You believe these things are getting ready to invade planet Earth? I believe they've already invaded. Uh, it's just a matter of manifestation. Now, I don't think they have yet uh, even come close to fully manifesting themselves, except in a few isolated incidents. People often ask, "Well, why do they land out in the out in the country somewhere at a farmhouse, or you know, like this report in France in whatever year it was? I think 1994 was it? Uh, when when uh, these two little children." Saw yes. these this thing out there in the in the field, and and they thought they were little little uh, 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 black children. Said, look, black children. I guess they didn't you know have too many uh, uh, of the uh, of the African American American or African. I guess it would be African French types over there. So they looked over there and they saw them, and so they wanted to go play with them. They're young children, and, and uh, they described to a T later on what happened. That, you know, these things didn't want to be bothered. They lifted into this uh, off of the uh, earth into the and they took off and, um, and so forth. And, but there were many other farmers around that saw exactly the same thing, and all the all the reports uh, 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 came together. So I forget the point of our question, but I, what was the question again? Well, just, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, that talk about um, E.T. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even some of the secular yeah, research dimensional have said about E.T. So... You know, these things are obviously have a have a have a physical appearance, and and they they come, you know, they they appear out in these uh, farmlands and different things. I think as kind of a as kind of a maybe a Luciferian or a, a, a you know demonic test of how people's going going to react. I don't know to what intelligence uh, degree uh, Satan and his minions have intelligence. I believe it's all, of course, demonic. It's interdimensional. These people have already, these, these things have already invaded, in my view, and so uh, I think it's just a matter of time until uh, until they <laughs> land in a city or something. Now, I don't know when that will be, but, but uh, certainly I don't think the world's quite ready for it yet, but... but uh, well, I, yeah, will they ever be ready? You know, that's true. One of the things, one of the, but, it's, but, I, but I agree with you that it's coming ready or not, and it's Therefore, it's important to try. Of course, to... I have my own views on that. You know, regarding uh, what many scoff at today, and uh, uh, they didn't years ago in the first and second century, uh, uh, the church fathers taught it and preached it, 
and that is the rapture of the church. This uh, Left Behind series that Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins did, uh, I believe that much of this is going to occur uh, fairly simultaneous with that event. Well, some people think that, you know, that the alien uh, invasion could be coupled with an event like that, or maybe even like a deception about where everybody has gone. Right, because, you know, the, the New Age has, has a, a, um, a theosophy, I guess you would say, that, that, um, that there's going to be a, a, a gigantic vanishing and, vanishing, and that it will be um, some of these people will have ascended to a higher mind order, and others will have to have been taken for retraining and other things. So that's even uh, inculcated into the New Age uh, Thinkers, I think. You know, one of the things that I've thought is interesting in the past, because I've also studied the secular researchers in this field, is that is that they also tend to view whatever um, these you know these these uh, beings, uh, whatever whomever they are, they, they they tend to view them as having spiritual qualities. In other words, if you uh, if you read uh, some of the stuff that was done by Dr. John Mack, he talks about how they they come in these strange spacecraft, but but the spacecraft and the entities don't seem to partake of properties that are mm -hmm. known physical laws or yeah, right. They they they're they're against all physical laws. I mean, when you can go from stop to start and and thousands of miles an hour in an instant and just vanish, and or you can turn at right angles. Uh, yeah, there's no uh, certainly no earthly astronaut that could uh, take that kind of. Uh, well, that's right. And Mac, you know, after he interviewed, I don't remember how many hundreds of people that claimed to be abductees, he concluded that whatever these things are, that they seem to belong both more to the spirit than they did to the material world. And, and uh, you know, Jacques Vallée, he said the same thing. He, he wrote in Passport Magnon Magonia that they, they, that they were, whatever these things are in his mind, were identical to the historic forms of angels, right. demons. Mm -hmm. So, so that even so that so that it isn't just you know uh, it isn't just us conservative guys that are kooks. But I mean, these guys are out there too that have done this their investigations, and these are very sincere secular researchers who you know who have done many thousands of hours of research. And at the end of the day, they conclude that whatever this phenomenon is, in their opinion, it's real. And not only is it real, but it seems to be identical to uh, biblical demonology, mm -hmm. and that according to their own words. So, so the, it's it, it's it's believable then to define it in ways that you have. I think it's a perfectly believable, and you know at least it, it is a it's a very plausible explanation, even though it's a spiritual one, and one based upon faith. But it takes just as much faith uh, to uh, to believe that uh, that these things can travel from uh, literally. Uh, Billions and you know miles away, millions upon millions of miles away, and uh, and then uh, be back as soon as uh, as they want to their own homeland, or if they can if they can simply pass through wormholes in space. I mean, it, it takes a lot of faith to believe that too. Right. Of course, even a wormhole, is, you know, stargates, um, that stuff can be defined by different people. I you know, I, I, I often think about um, uh, Aleister Crowley. You know, trying to open a dimensional portal, and some people would think of that as a stargate or whatever. But it, it certainly wasn't a mechanical apparatus. And if he was successful, you know, he brought through this being called Lamb that looks almost identical to modern depictions of the Greys. I want to ask you a question because 
I realize we've only got about 10 minutes here. Are you familiar uh, with the Vatican astronomer Guy Cosmonalgo? I've heard about that name and everything, but I haven't studied. You better clue us in on that one. Well, he just, you know, he's, he's, the, he's the one that wrote, he's an astronomer, and, and he wrote a book last year um, about the ET um, phenomenon. But what was astonishing about his, it's a small book, you can order it, it's from a Vatican uh, publishing house, I forget the name of the Vatican, the publishing house, I can send it to you. But it's a small book. But in that book, um, you know, he, he talks about how that we are now more likely than not in the very near future to make contact with extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, he's not talking about finding microorganisms on another planet. He's talking about advanced extraterrestrial intelligence. He says we're more uh, uh, likely than not now that that's going to happen in the very near future. And he makes the case that it's not going to challenge the authority of the Catholic Church. What do you what do you make of that kind of talk from somebody who is a highly placed person in the Vatican? Um, when I when I read things like this, I think that obviously in any in any situation where you have official disclosure, the Catholic Church is going to be involved in that. Well, it's going to um, involve so many people be, because um, of, because it represents so many people, yeah, and it seems and, like there's an intentional effort to make sure that the church is aware that this will not challenge their orthodoxy. It almost seems like they're trying to prepare them for official disclosure. Well, it is, and it's, it's, it's a massive uh, PR campaign. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just massive publicity when you're dealing with the releasing through the Vatican or even through um, peripheral officers to the Vatican, uh, this kind of thing, where you're preparing people for something. And let's face it, I, I, I have nothing against the Catholic uh, no, I don't need people. I don't agree with the theology involved, but I don't have. Certainly, the people are are really wonderful people. Most of them are very humble, very nice people. I'm talking about the I'm talking about the tremendous masses of them. Sure. And most of them, let's face it, are they're not educated people. They're not. Uh, they're they're more on the um, emotional scale. And I don't say that with any kind of uh, looking down my nose at them. I'm just saying that that you know you talk about all of the lands in, in uh, Central, South America, uh, well, all over the world where Catholics are, the vast majority of them are simple people. And uh, they're very emotional. They're given to uh, seeing things like uh, stigmata and other things. And, and this, again, is not to uh, put them down. But I'm saying that uh, people can be very easily uh, led, especially when they have a, such a strong faith that, uh, that they, they grasp to, and that's the majority of their their life outside of their humble uh, work and everything else in their lands. So I was saying that this type of an audience is ready-made for for this very thing. Well, of course, you know, I pastored for 25 years, and I'll tell you that most people, whether it's evangelical or Christian or whatever, it, you know, Jesus said they're sheep looking for a shepherd. Most people want to believe in their leaders, and they put faith in their leaders. Yes, they do. And uh, and so when somebody like Guy Cosmonalgo comes out, he's a he's a you know he's an astronomer. He's a he's a, I believe he's a Jesuit. He's, he's certainly a highly placed person within the Vatican, um, very respected, and published. And this book was published by a Vatican-owned publishing house. So it wasn't like he was acting like a maverick. In other words, this material wasn't published until it was reviewed by the the appropriate Vatican officials for publishing. So. For me, it was astonishing. It came out last year. Since then, he's been in the news. He did a he did an interview six or eight months ago, in which he was talking about that book. But he said that he's working on his next book now, 
And his next book is going to be about what he calls the search for the Jesus seed. Okay. And it was kind of a it was kind of a mystical, almost uh, panspermia mm-hmm. originator that he's talking about looking for, which goes right to you know uh, alien uh, uh, studies and ufology and the idea that you have an ancient astronauts who came here at some point. So it it felt to me like something was going on here that that uh, that we're we're slowly being set up for the possibility of official disclosure and in official disclosure the idea that we all we're all here as a result of visitation by super intelligences alien intelligences you know in the in the in the remote past who came here and for what you know monkeyed with uh, monkeys uh, escalated hominid DNA and created right right still tied into the evolutional model uh, in some ways um, but yeah I, I'll give you a close here at least my part with uh, with one thing here and that is uh, talking about this moment in time when uh, when these things are become manifest uh, to the whole world I think that that Revelation chapter 13 may have something to do that when when it says that uh, the false prophet there will have the power and ability to call fire down from heaven. I think this could very well be uh, the time spoken of, at least in the Bible, when this may occur. Well, now, this this new book you've written, An Epilim Imperative, uh, it, it, I'm not going to spoil the book, but it kind of ends with a cliffhanger uh, yes, that, does. that begs a sequel. Um, are you going to write a sequel? Is there another book? I to... certainly uh, need to get started on that right away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, yes, I, uh, I am. <laughs> you are. I, I you haven't started it yet, huh? Uh, yeah. Uh, we want to let people know that there's going to be a special. Uh, there's a special one-day special uh, on your new book. It's coming out uh, December 10th, but there's a special on December 12th where if they buy your book, from Amazon.com on December 12th, they're going to. This is astonishing. They're going to receive actually almost $80 in free uh, Christmas gifts, which includes four books and also um, the uh, DVD, uh, a DVD, the Dreamland Area 51 DVD, which was actually uh, an award-winning DVD. They're going to receive all of that uh, absolutely free. The only thing they're going to do is pay for the shipping. I mean, so what a deal. I mean, they buy Nephilim Imperatives at Amazon.com, and it's only $10.19 at Amazon.com. Buy that December 12th, that day only. That special deal is not good for any other day, correct? That's right. So they buy it that day, December 12th, uh, for $10.19 from Amazon. You got your Christmas gifts right there. And they're going to receive... $80 $80 in free Christmas gifts. It's absolutely astonishing. Anybody that wants to know uh, more about all of that and read about the free gifts and all that, they can go to officialdisclosure.com. That's officialdisclosure.com, and they could read there uh, about the, the different books and the DVD. I mean, it's a it's it's the biggest it's the biggest giveaway that Anomalous Publishing House, your publisher, has ever done. And uh, there's going to be a lot more advertising about that pretty soon. And people need to know that some of those things, like the DVD and some of the some of those top books that are over there, uh, are only going to be given to the first 1,000 customers. After that, people will still receive $80 in free uh, gifts. But they'll after that, they'll start getting substitutes. So they want to be make sure they're right there 
first four ready to be, uh, you know, among the first thousand people to get uh, some of those premium gifts. But that's going to happen on December 12th. Order the book Nephilim Imperatives by Terry James uh, from Amazon.com. That day only. If you want to know how the program works, go to officialdisclosure.com, and you can learn more about it there. It's right on the front page. Well, Terry, here in a few minutes, we're going to be out of time. We're going to have to go to our bottom of the hour break, our top of the hour break. Um, what else do you want to tell us about what you're doing right now in your research? Well, uh, a lot of my research right now is in the area of Bible prophecy, of course, and what's happening in Israel and the peace process uh, going on there, which I believe is the key to uh, where we might stand on God's prophetic timeline. But I'm looking very closely also at, um, at these things we've been talking about. I'm trying to uh, keep those on the front burner, too, so that, uh, well, to get fodder for my, my, my next uh, uh, novel for the sequel to, this, uh, to the Nephilim Imperities. And um, I do uh, I want to encourage people to get this. I think they'll find, particularly that cliffhanger you were talking about, uh, quite, uh, quite interesting. Quite interesting. Of course, you're an excellent writer. I mean, I've, I've read your, um, I read Rapture Dialogues. I've read some of the other stuff you've written in the past. I, I envy your. If I could write like you, I'd be a best-selling author too. Oh, you're too kind. Uh, <laughs> no, you're a terrific writer. Absolutely incredible. And uh, it was wonderful to talk to you tonight. Now, people want to visit Rapture ready.com do you do you uh, i know you update the news over there every day do you also yeah update? Up, we updated at midnight on uh, sunday night so in the morning it'll be a brand new one brand, uh, brand new, new one. Uh, be a brand new um, you know update plus we have the nearing midnight uh, which is a daily update of of um, our, co our commentary on the uh, on the news you, you also have some uh, very user-friendly things over there like chat rooms things like that oh yeah well, we have one of the best message boards uh around according to my partner Todd Strandberg who uh, he's the technical genius in all of this I've met Todd he's a wonderful guy he's a yeah. great person he's a great guy um, and uh, but they can they'll, they'll read about just whatever's going on in the world if it happens to include UFOs or Nephilim or any of that it'll be over there too yeah, absolutely and uh, quite a bit <coughs> excuse me quite a bit of it as a matter of fact all right, Terry. Well, listen, you're a, you're a great man. You're doing a great job. Appreciate you so much, and I look forward to talking to you again as soon as your uh, book comes out here. Well, thank you so much for asking me, and give my best to your next guest, Patty Heron. I I would. Uh... Oh, actually, tonight it's going to be Keith Robinson. Oh, oh, Patty has uh, Patty has not been able to make it. Okay, well. Yeah. Um, Patty's you know, supposed to be on. I know. Keith. Yeah. He, he, in fact, I, I had received an email from him a few days ago saying something about being on, but I think he's going to be on with Guy Malone. Okay, good. Well, say hi to him when, you, when you're with him there. Okay. And God bless. All right, uh, Terry, good night. And good night. Bye-bye. excellent time talking to prophecy expert Terry, Terry James about all of this UFO business and his belief that the 
agents behind the UFO phenomenon are dark intelligences, enemies of mankind on a quest to bring humanity to deception about their nefarious plans. Well, in our second hour tonight, we're going to take a different, although maybe associated, turn in the road as we welcome Keith Robinson, the author of a splendid new book from Anomalous Publishing called Logic's End. Now, i got to tell you, the plot to this book is actually very newsworthy. It sounds almost eerily similar to what current uh, SETI members and what some of the astronomers right now are speculating about, that soon an extrasolar planet is going to be discovered uh, that has the necessary requirements to produce and to sustain life. In this book by... Um, Keith Robinson, Logic Sand. There's a woman by the name of Rebecca Evans. She's a staunch evolutionary scientist, and she's the key person in this book. I'm not going to be a spoiler for the book, so I'm not going to give up the story. But this woman's chosen to visit this planet once it's discovered, and the idea that it can sustain life. But after she arrives on the surface of the planet, she's kidnapped by um, alien clans, and she finds herself caught in the middle of an ongoing planetary war. I've read the book. The book's absolutely fantastic. It's wonderfully written. It draws you right into the story. But at the heart of this book are deeper issues that we want to talk about tonight, having to do with intelligent design, creationism, the idea that maybe someday we might even find intelligent life on another planet. What lessons might we learn from that? Now, Keith, uh, and by the way, welcome to Live from Roswell. Uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's, good. it's great to have you on. You, you've dedicated your life to um, teaching other people about the evidence for creation. And also, uh, we should just say right at the very forefront here, against evolution. You've, re you've presented your research findings to school districts, administrators, dis uh, teachers, students, church members, wherever, wherever you've been given the opportunity. And I assume but that your interest in this topic of creation and evolution is actually what led to this new book, Logics and the novel about the origin of life, correct? That's right. Well, I want to talk to you about that tonight. Uh, first of all, however, you either, you were or you are a music director and also a, a public school teacher, right? That's correct. I currently am. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, as a school teacher... Uh, what made you decide to write a science fiction novel about creation and evolution? Because this is not something, I assume, um, can be talked about uh, readily within a public school situation. Yeah, and actually that's, that's part of where some of the desire came from to write this kind of novel, is the fact that I, I, I did get frustrated in the fact that I couldn't talk to my students about this stuff. Um, there's so much about the issue of creation evolution that I think the general population doesn't know about that I, I wanted to get the message out there to people, but I, I realized that in our day and age, one of the greatest tools that people can use to get a point across and to get message across is entertainment, especially in our culture. It's just it's, it's pervasive. It's just amazing. And um, so I, I decided to take a lot of the research that I've been working on um, and a lot of the, the arguments and, and logic that I had been uh, studying and put it into an action-adventure format that people would enjoy reading, but at the same time they would, get, they would have their, um, 
their, their ideas and thoughts kind of challenged and stimulated a little bit, get their thought process going. How long did you work on this book? Well, it took me about two years to write because, uh, it, you know, it's difficult to, to write while you're still holding on a full-time job. Um, but it took about two years, and then it, it took me a little bit longer to, to find a publisher, and now it's, it's going, and I'm working on the sequel. And, and how did you, uh, I mean, you know, like the plot? What was the process? I'm interested in this because obviously I'm a writer too, and I'm always interested in how other people, you know, how did you develop the plot line? You, you obviously, as a as a teacher, you're in public school, and you you know you have these young skulls full of mushes, Rush Limbaugh would say, <laughs> you know, that are sitting there, and they're you know they're they're curious, and you see things that are developing within society and culture that can impact perhaps even their worldview, how they interpret uh, the origin of the species and all that, and you, you're, you're driven to try to be able to communicate to them things that you do deeply believe in. So how does all of that come together? I mean, tell me the story. How did you, uh, where were you at? What did you do? How did you someday say, I'm going to write this book, and here's how I'm going to do the outline on the book, and how did it all happen? Well, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm fighting a little bit of a cold here. Oh, sorry. Um, I... It started when, when I was, I mean, I grew up with, with uh, science fiction. I loved Star Wars and Star Trek, and I was into even Dungeons and & Dragons, and, and I was into um, comic books and superheroes and all that kind of stuff when I was growing up. And, um, and then I just, <clears throat> at the time that I was looking to write this, I just was studying the whole issue of creation evolution and started really getting into it, and I realized, man, people need to hear this. Um, and so I kind of drew upon my background because as a public school teacher, I saw the kind of things that interest, interested young people. Um, and, you know, it's the kind of, kind of superheroes and, 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 and science fiction and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and it actually came about partially because I saw a sign on a church one time that said, science or, uh, evolution is true science fiction. And I thought, hmm, wouldn't that be interesting to present this stuff in an action-adventure science fiction novel? but yet deal with the whole issue of creation evolution. And so I started, I just started getting these ideas, and I said, boy, wouldn't it be neat if somebody did this? <laughs> and I started getting all these ideas of, you know, what would evolution really look like, I think, if it were to happen? Uh, what would it really look like? I didn't think it would look, because of the research, I didn't think it would look anything like what we see on Earth. I think it would look very different. And so that started to just continue to come back to that idea of what would it really look like? And so I decided to... to create this world where evolution really did occur and what it would look like and it was totally different from what we see on earth and so this human then gets put in the middle of this planet and starts and you know starts to realize that this looks totally different and therefore life on earth could not have evolved because of the, the differences that she saw there well and i have to say like like i said a moment ago i i read this book i couldn't put it down my wife read this book she couldn't put it down my daughter-in-law could not put this book down. So everybody so far that I know who has read this book um, has just been drawn into the story, and it, and it happens right away. I mean, a lot of books, even books that I've written that, that have done fairly well in the marketplace, I mean, you got to get past 150 pages before you get interested, you know. No, not this book. I mean, you're, you're in this thing 30 pages, and you're stuck. You know, you've got to read the whole thing. And, and, and these wonderful creatures, wonderful creatures that you developed and and even the technology that's there and the battleship and all these different things some of this also people should know are is also illustrated 
uh, in the book. But w- without being a spoiler, why don't you tell some of the people that are listening tonight, because there's a few 10, 000, uh, tens of thousands of people listening to this show, uh, tell them um, a bit about the plot without giving up, you know, the, the, uh, the big thing. Well, you've already mentioned uh, some of the plot. Um, I would like to add that Rebecca wasn't alone when she went on this trip. Um, so in the first couple chapters, um, NASA finds this planet that looks like it may sustain life using their planet-finding telescope, which is um, in the works. Uh, it is a real telescope that's in the works. And um, so NASA sends this ship uh, full of people, an entire crew, to the planet to check it out. And she does get kidnapped, and she also gets rescued. And again, this is all happens in the first four chapters. Um, she does get rescued by another clan of aliens, but this clan is, is a, it's just a hodgepodge of different kinds of aliens. And so um, they're a mercenary clan, and she makes a deal with them that if they take her back to her ship, she'll give them technology that they don't have. So I kind of, I, I like the idea of having humans for once being the ones that have better technology than the aliens. Um, and I would also like to mention here that uh, the aliens that are on this planet are not your greys or right. uh, the kind of aliens that you may have talked about with Terry James and, and that right. are, you know, um, evil, evil creatures and stuff like that. This is, these are, each of these uh, aliens on, on the planet I created um, are from, they're based on different animals, real animals on Earth. And, uh, but they're all mutated and they're very intelligent. And um, so I, I come at it from that angle. But um, so the rest of the book is really her trying to get back to her ship and her crew, and along the way they get attacked and all these sorts of things happen to them, and she finds out that uh, life on this planet is completely, as I mentioned before, completely different from what they see on, what she sees on Earth. I mean, these creatures are asymmetrical; they're constantly in a state of of evolution. I mean, every creature that's born on this planet is a mutant from its parent. They're all cannibals. They're asexual. They, they just reproduce at different times in their life. Um, there's intelligent moving plants that live on this planet, and, and um, it's just survival of the fittest is the rule, and there's no such thing as love or beauty or art or self-sacrifice or anything that's positive. It's all negative. Well, and this whole thing about survival of the fittest that you just mentioned, I mean, that was the thing that stood out to me as the most stark reality in this book, that if you, if you actually carry the whole concept of evolution as you know i grew up and you grew up you know hearing about this darwin's theory of evolution um what you've done in this book is show us that if darwin's theory of evolution was correct and the survival of the fittest it would lead to this kind of chaos and people need to know these characters are so or so are so well developed in this book that that's part of why you can't set this book down because as you introduced each of these characters (laughs) you do it in such a way that I need to know now, you know, what's this guy about or this or this thing, this dragon or whatever, what's it about and what's it going to do? Now, let me ask you a, a question that has more to do um, <clears throat> with, with even maybe, you know, today's news. Do you actually think that NASA um, might actually uh, make such an announcement someday or the European Space Agency? Uh, that, that goes along with kind of the opening of this book. We've, we have found a planet that we think can sustain life. We're going to send a ship there. Or maybe even we found a planet we think can sustain life, which they're, they're kind of saying right now. And, and we think that we see signals that there could even be life there. Do you think that's possible? Oh, I definitely think it's possible. Um, I find it interesting is that as I was writing this book, uh, there was a program produced, and I don't remember exactly who produced the program, but I remember the... The uh, uh, Michael Michael uh, 
Dorn, I think his last name is, from Star Trek, the Klingon, he was actually the narrator of the show, and it was exactly the premise of my book that that what would uh, you know life on other planets look like? And NASA sent out this you know is searching for life on other planets and searching for for other inhabitable planets, and this is what it might look like. And they had this whole computer animated. And what was interesting about that show is that all those creatures were just purely speculation. It was kind of like my book, you know, it's all pure speculation. You have you know it's not really based on you know it's based on some science, but it, you know. They haven't found anything. It was just all speculation. But um, I think it's possible. But when I was doing the research for my book, I found that that the chance of us sending a manned crew to any any even close planet, relatively speaking, is at, at, at the current time impossible. That's one reason why I made the book take place in the in the future. But uh, even still, from the research I've done, I don't know that we'd be even be able to send a manned mission there unless some technology changes drastically. Right. Of course, you know. I, 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 a kid growing up, I, I remember watching Buck Rogers in the 21st century, and I look back now about that, and, and, and also, you know, um, Dick Tracy with his gigantic wristwatch, you know, <laughs> talking into it. And I look at what we're doing with technology now, and I realize that if, you know, if time continues... Uh, yeah, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I mean... You know, even even uh, a god. When when you're talking about Nimrod building the Tower of Babel, he says, you know, what what they've imagined to do will not be beyond them. So, man seems like he's intuitive enough, and that if given enough time, we're going to solve some of these issues. And we're already talking about manned missions to near planets like Mars and the Moon, and we've sure. already been on the Moon, but repeat missions to the Moon and Mars and like that. Um, let, let's. I, I want to ask you some other questions that go more to the ethics and philosophy and the idea of creationism and intelligent design and things like that. But before we move past your book, I want to ask a couple of quick questions. The book, you actually have these pencil sketches, 15 of them, mm-hmm. um, in the book of these uh, bizarre alien creatures that you've created. Um, the, the sketches look like something out of a video game for teenagers, and I want to ask if, if that was your intended audience to, to, to reach teenagers. Well, in a way it was. Um, I wanted to appeal to young people, uh, especially young boys, because in general, um, again, they're not going to get a lot of this information from other places. And uh, I know it's very hard to to get something across to them if it's not entertaining. And so I did want to try to appeal to them. However, like you mentioned earlier, um, my experience as well has been that many of the people I've talked to who have read my book um, they're from all sorts of different age groups and different uh, gender. I mean, I, I've had um, some senior citizens who've read it and have really liked it. Um, some that I never would have imagined they would have even liked it at all or picked it up, but they've really enjoyed it. So it really does have a wide appeal. But I guess I would say, yeah, the, the intended audience really was younger people from, uh, say, middle school through into um, uh, through, through to 30. Although in this day and age, uh, we've got many of what I've heard termed adult lessons that would really enjoy it as well. Some of them are 35 and stuff. Also, some of the names of the characters in this, in this book, they're very strange. Um, you included a pronunciation, a pronunciation guide at the front of the book. Um, how'd you come up with these names? Well, in, in many ways, I always, it always made me laugh in some of the Star Trek and, and other uh, science fiction shows that the names and the characters were so similar to humans that it just made me laugh. I said, boy, if, if, if life really did evolve, and that, it would be so bizarre. So I tried to come up with some just really strange names 
um, that weren't that easy for English speakers to pronounce, because I don't think they would be if they were aliens. Um, so I did feel that it was necessary, especially because people who read the book early before it was published said, yeah, I have no idea how to pronounce these. <laughs> well, so I said, well, maybe I'll include some kind of pronunciation guide. But can, um, can you yourself actually pronounce those names? Yes, I can. And so tell us some of them. Um, well, uh, the... But tell us the character, and then uh, how do you pronounce their name? Well, there's, there's a snake character. His name is Rispnul. You have to have the S, kind of like a hiss. So Rispnul. And uh, he's a snake-like alien that's very pessimistic. Um, and then there's another one, uh, the dragon creatures, which are featured on the cover. They're actually, uh, some, of the, some of the names I actually got from musical terms and musical instruments <laughs> based, based on my musical background. So the, the dragon creatures are called the Mardangam, which is actually a two-headed Indian drum. Uh, that, a two-headed that, drum from India. So that's actually the, the whatever you just said. Mardangam. <laughs> that's actually a real word. Yes, it is. Oh. <laughs> I think I might have spelled it slightly differently. But um, and then a creature is like the modid, uh, M-O-D-I-R, modid, and uh, that is very similar to the Spanish word for death, modid, M-O-R-I-R. Um, and then the another the plant-like creature's name is erhu, or luri erhu, and. Um, that an erhu is actually a two-stringed Chinese fiddle. And then, and then at one point they crossed over the brach gorge, and brach is the German word for viola, which is the main instrument I play. So I had to throw that in there. <laughs> uh, Some of them are just made up, though. Now, how active are you right now in music still? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a professional violist. I, I play... Um, I haven't got to hear you. Well, yeah, actually, I, uh, I could send you some, some uh, recordings. I'd love to. <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah, I play in a professional orchestra. I'm, I'm uh, the principal violist, and I do some freelance work. I also sing and play piano and that kind of wow, thing. Wow, that's great. Well, I'd love to hear that. Um, and, and, you know, the funny thing you were talking about a moment ago about watching Star Trek and, and uh, <laughs> they go to these different planets and everybody has human-like names, Name, named after either usually after Greek gods or named after famous celebrities in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, and it's funny that, you know, we, well, we, uh, and all of our, were, um, you know, even even the best-made uh, Hollywood depictions of our discoveries of extra-solar life, extra-planetary life, uh, we, uh, no matter where we go in the universe, when we get there, these creatures are going to talk to us in English. <laughs> Well, I, I, I worked on that in my book because, I, again, I wanted it to be realistic. Um, and so in this planet, uh, every creature, every clan has its own language. And uh, so I, I had to work that out, and I can't tell you how I worked it out to make it. They have a translator unit, but I can't tell you where that translator unit came from. Otherwise, it would ruin a part of the book. But, right. uh, but I, I did deal with that issue as well. No, I know you did. The, book's, the book is really well thought out. Anybody that wants to, to pick this book up and read it, just uh, for pleasure. We'll thoroughly enjoy the book. Those people like us that like to read in between the lines will also thoroughly enjoy the book because the book introduces some really uh, interesting, heavy, uh, philosophical questions about life and the origin of life. And l let's go there now. What are, what are some of the arguments in this book against evolution that you intentionally wove into this uh, creative story? 
Well, uh, let me just also say that the name of the book, again, is Logic's End, because I don't think we've mentioned it in a while. Oh, that's uh, <laughs> And by the way, where can people get a copy of Logic's End? It's L-O-G-I-C-S, Logic's End, E-N-D. Um, it's available uh, online at Amazon.com, uh, or you can go to Barnes & Noble and get it there. Um, and there's information at uh, the Anomalous Publishing website, which is spelled A-N-O-M-A-L-O-S, kind of like Anomaly. So the Anomalous Publishing um, website, you can get it. Get some links there that'll take, tell you how to get it. So. Now, what if somebody wanted to buy it directly from you and get an author's uh, autographed copy? Is there a way to do that or no? Um, well, you could probably send me an email, and then um, I can give you some information. To do that, and you can so you can contact me through my publisher. Okay. So if someone's interested in that, yeah. All right. So if somebody wanted to do that, they could. So back to the question. Uh, the book is called Logics, and it's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or whatever other bookstore. You can just go in and ask for it. If you want to try to get a, uh, an autographed copy from the author, then you can just go to the Anomalous Publishing website and uh, go through the publishing house that way. Uh, in this book, and, Evel and the whole discussion right now, about a creation is is pretty big. I mean, you know, I remember I was a pastor for 25 years, and I remember a couple of decades ago that the subject of creationism was a pretty big issue, and then it kind of died out for a long time. And then all of a sudden now, with intelligent design and some of these other things that are occurring, creationism is a big argument again. So I don't know if you knew that at the time you were writing this book, but the book has come out at an excellent time because you're, you're talking in this book about some of the hypothetical philosophical questions related to the, to the question of creationism versus evolution. How did you, how did you weave that into this book? Well, uh, first of all, let me uh, start off by mentioning that you're absolutely correct. I mean, especially right now, the Answers in Genesis, which is the largest creation ministry that's out there currently, I believe, um, they just uh, opened a $27 million creation museum uh, in northern Kentucky, right near Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, so I just find it really interesting that my book was published uh, and came out in print literally uh, about a month and a half after that museum opened. So the timing really was interesting. Um, but what I do is I, I deal with, obviously because of the title Logic's End, I deal with some logical arguments, and then I also deal with some scientific uh, arguments. And actually, in the back of the book, I, I not only give some of the, the four main uh, scientific arguments against evolution that I've uncovered, but I also give some um, materials that people can, can look up and kind of do more research on. So I give them kind of a good starting place. But um, some of the arguments I deal with are things like um, if you imagine a world where there is only asexual reproduction, where uh, supposedly according to evolution we start off as a single-celled organism that reproduced itself and then it reproduced itself and so on and so forth, how would you ever get male and female? Now, see, evolutionists look at it backwards and they say, well, see, we have male and female today, so therefore somewhere along the way it must have evolved. But that's kind of backwards thinking. You've got to give me a good enough scenario as to how it could evolve, especially when asexual reproduction is very efficient. So that's one of the arguments I deal with, and that all the creatures on this planet that I created are asexual. And uh, they just reproduce another one just like them. And, and what the female body is more complex than the male body. So on Earth, how would you ever get one to evolve without the other one when both are needed to produce life? And then when you look at the complexities of how uh, sexual reproduction occurs on Earth and with the male and female and 
the whole the whole thing i mean if even one little area doesn't function properly if the placenta doesn't do its job 100% then that baby will not survive and to imagine that all of that just happened by chance is just impossible so that's one argument i also deal with things like um um, evolution can explain, as I mentioned earlier, all the negatives that we see around us, but it cannot explain the positives. So in this planet, there's, in the planet I created in Logic's End, there's, there's no uh, beauty, there's no music, there's no art, uh, there's no such thing as self-sacrifice, um, nothing like that. And, and again, I ask, I ask the question, if you don't have any of that to begin with, how would it ever evolve? Whereas evolutionists look saying, well, we have love, so it must have somehow evolved. But that's backwards thinking, in my opinion. So those are some of the logical arguments. You know, why did we ever lose the ability to run on all fours? Why did we lose uh, the tough skin, the tough snake-like skin and scales, and we have such weak skin? Uh, why did we lose our tails? You know, there's so many things. Why did we lose this? Why did we lose that? We're so... If we're supposed to be the highest evolved creatures, we're pretty sad when you consider that a chihuahua can outrun us. <laughs> so uh, those are some of the logical <laughs> arguments. And then I go into some um, scientific arguments, such as the fact that we have never observed in nature. And again, science is, you know, evolution is supposed to be based on science, and yet these, these four points I'm about to bring out actually contradict evolution, and they're completely based on science. One is um, we've never observed in nature any any force that can create uh, a code system, okay, but yet our DNA inside of our body is such a complex code system, it's the most complex code system in the entire known universe, and yet we've never observed anything in nature that can create a code system other than intelligence, and yet evolution says that it just evolved randomly, DNA evolved just random chances, and so that it's a contradiction. Uh, another one has to do with we have never observed in nature a, a, um, a, a, anything that can produce new genetic information. So like a bacteria, they've estimated, has about one 500-page book worth of information in its DNA. And humans have about 1,000 books of 500 pages each of information contained in their DNA. How do you go from one to, to 1,000? You're, you're missing 999 books. Well, there's never been anything. Mutations cannot add genetic material an animal. You never observe a dog being born with wings because a dog doesn't have the genetic information to create wings. So, I mean, you just look around us and what we see in the natural world, and it goes against evolution. So those are two of the big scientists. Then when you study probabilities, because of the complexity of the, of, of the cell and DNA, they, mathematicians, who are not Christians, I would add, who are not creationists, they have done calculations and have concluded that the chance of life arising by natural chance, by just natural processes, is equal to 10 to the 40,000th power, or 40,000th power, a 10 with 40,000 zeros after it. By the way, this was done by Sir Fred Hoyle, uh, in case anybody's interested in looking it up. But um, that they've also done probability statistics and stuff, and they've determined that the number of estimated atoms in the known universe is 10 to the 80th power. Not 80,000th power, but 80, 80 power, <laughs> 80 zeros. Um, and they have also said that anything that is greater than 10 to the 50,000th or 50th power, 10 to, with 50 zeros after it, is mathematically impossible. And let me go back and say that other statistic again. 10 to the 40,000th power is the chance of life arising by natural processes. 
So even math disproves evolution. It says it's just too complicated. It's impossible. And then the fourth argument I deal with is irreducible complexity, which in its easiest way of saying it would be like saying that you can take a car and you can remove the windshield wipers and the headlights and, the, and uh, all the plush seats and everything out of it, but you get to a certain point where you can't take away anything else or it will not work as a machine. You can't take away the steering mechanism, you're going to crash. You can't take away the tires, even one of the tires. You can't take away the spark plug or the battery or any of the wires connecting them because then it just won't work. And yet we observe that in our bodies. They are molecular machines that if you take away any one of, of, of the parts that make it work, it will not function, which goes, flies in the face of evolution because evolution says things grew gradually. Well, how can you have something gradually when it won't work unless everything's all the pieces are there and in the correct order. So those are the four main issues I deal with at the back of the book. Sorry, that was a long answer. Yeah, well, we're talking tonight with Keith Robinson. He's the author of Logics End. It's a new book from Anomalous Publishing House. He's a fascinating person. He's certainly uh, well-educated. He's actually a school teacher who sees such reasonable arguments against the idea of evolution. He's dedicated his life to teaching people about the evidence for creation and against evolution, you know, you mentioned a minute ago things like asexual reproduction. Um, for for lay people like me, is asexual reproduction is that the, the same thing as proscenogenesis, uh, um, virgin birth? Um, what it basically means is that the creature is not male or female. It's a sexless creature. It, it doesn't have any sex organs. It just reproduces itself. It it becomes you know, like if you're talking about bacteria and stuff like that, it just, the cells just start to divide one day, and then it creates another one that's just like it, or with, you know, slight differences and variations and stuff. We're going to have to work very hard to try to get you on um, some of these other major programs, like Coast to Coast and some of those other programs, because um, you're a very articulate, very intelligent man. Have you been to the new Creation Museum you were talking about a moment Yes, ago? I have, and it is amazing. It is it is. They bring a lot of really great points and great arguments up at that museum, and they do it in a way that is just, here's the evidence, um, and, and, you know, this is how we interpret it. Which, by the way, if I can throw in this, one of the um, big things that frustrates me, and, and the message I'm trying to get across, and, and that Answers in Genesis works on, too, in their Creation Museum, is just the fact that it's really, the whole issue of creation evolution is not science versus religion. It really isn't. Even though the media likes to pretend it is, what it really boils down to is science versus science. It's two different interpretations of the same science. <clears throat> um, what a lot of people, pardon me, <clears throat> what a lot of people need to understand is that origin science is different from operational science. See, evolutionists like to blur the lines. They like to say, well, this is, you know, it's all science, but, um, and it's all the same science. But operational science is the kind of science that gives us computers and cars and puts man on the moon and all that kind of thing. It's, it's repeatable. You can do it in a laboratory. One person can say, this is how I did it, and another person can copy it exactly as long as they follow all the same directions. That's operational science. Origin science is where you look at the evidence that's left from an event, right. and then you interpret that evidence. Um, people that do this are like the detectives or forensics or, you know, the, the doctors, uh, the morticians that do the autopsies and stuff, they have to look at what the evidence is left over from the event, whether it's a murder or whatever, and they have to try to piece together what happened. And that's where interpretation is absolutely vital. 
And I, I was just, uh, just recently, um, in fact, just this last week, there was um, in Science Now, they, they had a, a new ape fossils found in Africa. And what's interesting about this, this article I was reading is that they, they make up this whole story about how, and this is, by the way, off of the Answers in Genesis website, if you go there, and there's a link to this, this article that talks about these new ape, new ape fossils found in Africa. And it's just absolutely amazing because they build this whole story about, well, you know, it seems like uh, the, that the apes originally evolved in Africa, and then maybe they started uh, diverging and going out into Europe and Asia, and, and they create this whole backstory. And when you get down to the article and you realize they made this whole thing, they, they interpreted all of this story of where these African apes came from based on a partial lower jaw and 11 teeth of right. an ape. Now that just blows my mind. How they can, I mean, they'll tell you what they ate and where they slept and how they built fire and all this kind of stuff and, and all this based on a jawbone. So I, I, I'm real skeptical when I read that kind of stuff. And it just goes to show that it's not, it's not religion versus science. It's you have two Ph.D. scientists. One looks at the fossil and says, this is a half-human, half-ape. The other one looks at the fossil and says, no, this was an ape that went extinct. Or, and, and they both give reasons as to why they believe that. But the bottom line is, it's an interpretation. And that's one thing that that Answers in Genesis Creation Museum, they start off their museum talking about that very point. Because it's a crucial point, and I wish people would understand it. Right. Well, that's obviously, you know, I, I'm actually a news reporter, and I cover this stuff every single day. And, and you know, I've, I've read uh, several recent stories about the many thousands of life forms that are going, that are going to go extinct in the next couple of decades so extinction processes are happening all the time oh we, yeah we would not simply take these creatures and try to write them into the evolution of the human species one of the things you've done that's interesting which a lot of novelists who may have uh questions about you know life or philosophy or ethics or whatever haven't done that was interesting with your books you actually provide at the end of it though it's a novel and you've written these deeper questions into the you know into the uh, epic of a novel uh, you actually provide some scientific quotes, st uh, statistics, uh, uh, that back up several of the arguments in the novel. Why don't you explain that to us? Well, exactly. And I wanted people to know that the, the information that I present in the novel, because it is such a fantasy story, it's such a fiction story with you know all these weird creatures and stuff, um, I wanted people to know that the science that I based my, my book on is real and that I just brought it out in a fun way but that it doesn't, should not take away from the science itself. And um, I also believe uh, that people, I wanted to, to pique people's interest so that they would do their own research and look into it more. Um, one of the saddest things to me is when I talk to young people at, at my school and other places, and I say, what do you believe? And then they'll tell me, this is what I believe, blah, blah, blah. And they say, why? Why do you believe that? Oh, well, that's what I was taught in school. Or, well, that's what my parents believe. I said, well, have you ever looked into it? Have you ever done any research? Have you ever, you know, I mean, the, one of the, I believe the most important question that we can answer in life is what's going to happen to us when we die? And yet I find so many people that don't do any research on it. They don't well, even look into it. They don't well, get any thought. And so I wanted to, not, not only in the novel, I wanted to give them some things to think about, try to pique their interest into this topic. But then I also, of course, wanted to give them some resources that they can look into for further information. In the back of your book, you, you actually talk about 
theistic evolution. Why don't you uh, describe that for us? Well, I have found that most people fall in the middle and that on this whole issue of creation evolution, there's a lot of people, I mean, there, there's some that are diehard evolutionists and there's some that are diehard creationists, but majority of people, they don't know what to think. Um, here they're presented with all this evidence for evolution, which I find it interesting that after all these years of teaching evolution in the public schools, the statistics show, and I don't have them in front of me, but the statistics show that there's still a large majority of people in the United States that don't believe in evolution. So they haven't been that successful in their uh, propaganda. But, uh, and I think that's for good reason, and, and it's because there's too much that can't be explained by evolution. Um, evolution could possibly explain some of the evidence we see around us, but a good model, a good scientific model has to explain everything. And I don't think evolution could do that. And so you find a lot of people that they believe evolution, but you know what, there's too much, you know, there's too much unexplained in the world, and there's got to be a God, uh, and all this kind of stuff, and they were raised, you know, in the church, and so they don't know what to think, and so they try to make the two theories fit together, the, the two models of origin of life. The problem is, is that they're so contradictory. Um, there's so much that just, go, they, they, they fight left and right. I mean, if evolution is true, <clears throat> then the God is God who created this process of death and decay and, and destruction and, and pain and suffering for, for millions of years, and, and, and he really didn't have much of a part to it. I mean, some people believe maybe he guided evolution and that kind of thing, but how do you make that fit with the stories of Adam and Eve and the creation where it says that the earth was created before the sun, whereas according to evolution, the sun came first and then the earth, and so you, you end up so in this dichotomy where you can't explain it, you can't make it fit together. Uh, so you would say, like others have, that uh, those who are strictly devoted to evolution, in many in many cases, it actually becomes their religion. Is yeah. What it is. In fact, um, evolution has many similarities to, to religion in the fact that a lot of it's based on faith. You have to just trust that this stuff could occur by random processes when we've never observed it. We've never observed life being created out of non-living materials. So you just kind of have to believe it on faith that it happened millions of years ago. Right. And, um, but one of the things that I have found, that I, and this is, again, why I encourage people so much, is that if the more you study creation and evolution, the more you study the, the, the arguments that I had presented earlier uh, that are against evolution, and you start looking into some of the, the creationist ideas of how things could have happened, and, you know, that explains so much, you start to realize that evolution can't be true. The problem, the reason you can't make creation and evolution fit together is because they're diametrically opposed, and one of them has to be wrong. And the more I, the more I study the whole, the whole debate, the more I realize evolution, is, it cannot be true. Not just that, you know, I don't think it's true, but it, it's based on it contra things that contradict known science. And observed science. Let me ask you a question because um, live from Roswell is obviously a secular program. There's there are an awful lot of people who listen to this program who would probably agree with every, everything you're saying. There's also people <laughs> listening to this program tonight who might not agree with anything that we're saying. You're saying, and 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 uh, and. These are people who are reasonable people who have been raised within a particular worldview that just simply doesn't coalesce at all uh, with what you're talking about. And I would want people to know that you know I, I I'm very impressed with you as a person. I met you at the at the uh, CBA Booksellers uh, Convention 
this year. Uh, I, I had known you, of course, before that, but this was the first time I'd met you in person. You were there signing copies of this book, actually, Logic's End, uh, for retail buyers. I want to ask you a couple of, of uh, questions that regard issues that often come up uh, on the Live from Roswell show that are related to, the, to this subject matter and that people who listen to Live from Roswell would be interested in. A couple of issues. The first one is the subject of panspermia, um, the idea that life was seeded on Earth, perhaps, you know, in the distant past by, let's say, microorganisms carried to the Earth by asteroids or some other uh, similar mechanism. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, let me, uh, I like to preface all my remarks. <laughs> uh, let me just say that um, one of my favorite quotes and the way I sign all my books is with the saying, real gold fears no fire. And that is, if your theory is correct, if you're an evolutionist and you believe that your theory is correct, then do you have nothing to fear from looking into other viewpoints? Because if your theory is correct, it'll just come through the fire as being even more pure than it was beforehand. And I even encourage, encourage religious people. I say, you know what? Don't just believe what you believe because that's what you've been taught. Do some research. Look into it. And if your faith is true, it'll just come through the fire even more pure than it was before. But if it's not true, it'll be revealed for being false. So I would encourage people to, to, to look into, uh, if they don't believe in creation and they don't believe in intelligent design, just look into some of the arguments. Look into some of the things I was talking about, about uh, DNA and, and about uh, irreducible complexity and things like that. And I think if you keep an open mind, you, you might be surprised. Um, now, let me answer your question about panspermia. I actually deal with it a little bit in my book, um, but I, I think it comes down to the question of uh, where did that life come from, the life that supposedly seeded Earth, where did that come from? Because if you don't, one of the things I mentioned in my book is that there's only really two choices as to how the life in the universe came about. A, it was created by a god, or B, it came about by random processes. I don't get into panspermia all that much because really panspermia just begs the question again, where did that life come from? So if aliens seeded the life on Earth, <clears throat> okay, that explains where life on Earth came from, but where did the aliens come from? Well, either they were created by God or they evolved through natural processes. Same with, you know, life coming from a comet, you know, and landing on Earth. Well, again, where did that life from the comet come from? So you really keep coming back to the same two points. It's either life was created or it, it evolved. And for me, if you can't believe that life on Earth was, uh, evolved because of the complexities of the humans that we had to have been somehow seated here, then how can you believe that an alien being who's got to have even more uh, intelligence than we do and more complexity in its body... How could, and I say that because it supposedly created us, the aliens supposedly created us, well then how would they be created when they're even more complex than we are? So it just, it comes back to the same question. Well, in panspermia now, it doesn't necessarily necessitate that there was a more complex form of life. It could be a microorganism and then evolution occurred. But but you're... But, you're but it still comes back to the point, where did that microorganism come from? It still comes back to the point, and it's a cyclical argument, but, and I get it. I mean, I understand completely, but, it, but the way you answered this actually brings me to another question, the second question, um, and this is, the, this is a, a related subject to your thesis as well. Um, the difference between creationism and intelligent design, because 
to some people now those are one and the same thing, but to a lot of other people, uh, there's a difference between creationism and intelligent uh, design because uh, creationism would be the title we would place on those people who um, believe that God created everything as told in the book of Genesis, whereas in intelligent design, this could ind indicate that, you know, an alien presence like the ancient astronaut theory holds uh, came down to the earth at some point in the remote past. They were intelligent. They tinkered with hominin DNA, monkeys or whatever, and they, cre and they accelerated their evolution and they created the current human race. I mean, there's Eric Von Daniken, Zachariah Sitch, and all these guys out there with their Earth Chronicle series books and, and uh, chariots of the gods and whatever believe that when they interpret some of the, uh, you know, the Anunnaki, the Sumerian cuneiform text, that they're seeing a record of uh, super intelligences who came from another planet, and they, and I know that this goes back to the cyclical, cyclical argument, but what is the what is the primary difference between between creationism and intelligent design? I guess that's my question. Sure, um, and I'm glad you brought it up because there is a difference, and it's frustrating when when you hear people uh, they don't want intelligent design in the classroom because that's going to be you know teaching religion. You know what, it, it's really not. Um, the difference between, I like to say that intelligent design is, is a step removed from creationism. It's true. They are linked in the fact that they both believe that there was a creator. Um, however, designer. that's about as far as intelligent design goes. Um, intelligent design basically just says that if you look at the life that we see on Earth and everything, that it, there's too much complexity, there's too much that had to be absolutely perfect for it to occur, that the only explanation is a creator, a, a designer, um, because of, like I said, the irreducible complexity, or there's something called the anthropic principle, which is where the, the universe and everything is so finely tuned that if one thing were slightly different, like gravity was slightly heavier or whatever, then the entire universe would collapse. It wouldn't exist. And so it just shows a complexity. Um, if you see writing in the sand, you wouldn't say, you know, if it says John loves Mary written in the sand, you wouldn't assume that that was done by the wind and the waves, you know, you'd know that that was an intelligence that wrote that because of certain, certain uh, categories, certain things that you can identify. And so that's what intelligent design says. It says we can identify these things, and therefore we had to have been created. But that's it. So like you said, it could be aliens that created us. It could be, and, and not, all, not all of the people in intelligent design uh, camp, uh, in fact, a lot of them are not Christians. Some of them might be Jews. Some of them might be um, kind of theistic evolution uh, evolutionists, where they believe that we had to have been started somehow, but then maybe evolution took over and that kind of thing. And yet they are recognizing the the same thing that a persons like yourself, and if I'm wrong, you can correct me, who I would subscribe to the creationist camp, recognizing the same phenomenology that there is a significant, significant, significant amount of scientific evidence that points to. Um, divinity in terms of uh, the origin of the species, that suddenly there, you know, the, about, about the time the Sumerian uh, civilization appears on Earth, there's no history before that, and just, just all of a sudden, in, in fairly recent history, actually, just a few thousand years right. ago, all of a sudden, complex societies are here just overnight, and, um, and all of this points not to a slow progress of evolution, but to something that occurred 
essentially overnight. It was an act of creation. We're going to run out of time, and I want to ask you a couple of very quick questions, and you have to give me very short answers to this because I think we only have about two or three minutes now. Um, you're, uh, how, how, I know that you speak also in a public forum. You speak at not just school but churches, special events. How can people get a hold of, the, of you if they want uh, you, to invite you to come and speak at their event? At this, um, as I mentioned before, at this point, the best way is to just contact my publisher. I'm trying to work on a website that um, people can contact me through there. Um, but right at this point, that would be the best way. And if I could add one more last thing to that last comment okay. about creation and versus intelligent design, is that creation deals with the Bible specifically and the history of the Bible. All right. Now, uh, your book, Logics End, how can people get a copy of it? Uh, Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Uh, any of their online, or really you can go to just about any uh, bookstore, I believe, and just uh, ask for it, and they can order it for you. Uh, one fast question at the end of this book. You actually, the, to me, when I read the book, there was kind of a hint behind the main character there that there might be a sequel. Yes, I've, I've got uh, two sequels that I'm working on. That um, uh, It does go, the first book, Logic and the one that's out now, it, it really deals with more of an intelligent design standpoint, like we just talked about. Whereas the second two books get a little bit more into the creationist side of things. And so that will deal with the age of the earth, but it also deals with um, some more arguments, scientific arguments uh, against evolution. So, All right. Well, I want to invite people. Uh, buy Logic Sin, Amazon.com. You can get it at, at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at your local bookstore. Ask for it. L-O-G-I-C apostrophe S-E-N-D. Logic Sin by Keith Robinson, published by Anomalous Publishing House. I absolutely guarantee it. This is Tom Horn. I'm recommending to you that you buy it. I read it. I loved it. My wife loved it. My daughter-in-law loved it. Everybody, everybody that I know so far that has read this book has said, man, this is a standout book, and uh, we want you to get it. It's by Keith Robinson. Yeah, it's Logic. got five-star rating on Amazon. So. Five-star ratings at Amazon. Everybody who's read it so far, and also um, if you have uh, any kind of a, a situation, a convention, uh, you need somebody to come to speak to you. Um, uh, you know, Keith is a he is a public school teacher. As you've heard tonight, he's very articulate. He's capable of talking about this subject matter. He's available. Contact him through anomalouspublishing.com. And uh, folks, thank you for joining us tonight. Keith, thank you for being on the show with us tonight. Thanks for having me. And uh, God bless you. Live from Roswell, this is Tom Horn saying we'll see you next week with Guy Malone.